Okay, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Malachi, or some would say Malachi, being that he's Italian, uh, that we can, uh, well, he's not Italian, he's a good Jewish boy. Um, finishing up our series in uh, the last um, 12 books of the Hebrew Scripture, some call it the minor prophets, I don't think they're minor, they're pretty major. So I've entitled the series Malachi. We're able to get it through in 13 weeks, taking two weeks for Zechariah. And every other than that, we've just moved as kind of a survey through the books. And I hope this has been a blessing to you. Um, it's been a blessing to me. I've never taught through these books, and so I've enjoyed it. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the book of Malachi and how it um, ministers to us. We pray that we'd be careful to hear the word of God, uh, to look to see what is in this book that would speak to us. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and also all the obedience in response to the word in Jesus' name, amen. Probably one of the most difficult things you can do is to speak to someone who doesn't want to hear what you have to say. They have what we call an attitude. Have you ever spoken to somebody who has an attitude against what you're about to present? When my kids were teenagers, when Renata and Paul were teenagers and living at home, I would often have to um, speak a word. They were good kids, but there's always time for a word of correction, amen? And uh, about halfway through the correction, they'd say, we know... Teenager, parents of teenagers, have you ever done? We know. They don't know. Teenagers don't know nothing. But they think they know everything, but they know nothing. They go, we know. And basically, that was an attitude like, Dad. And so after a while, a couple of weeks of we knows, I got to the point where I just began to very loudly tell them, and their eyes got real big, oh, Dad's going off. I'd say, I don't want to hear we know anymore. No more we knows. All I want to hear is yes, dad. And they looked at me, like I had lobsters crawling out of my ears. (laughs) We know is an attitude. It's talking to somebody who's got an attitude. Well, the reason I bring this up is the book of Malachi. The Lord is speaking to them and... uh, What's happened is they're back in the land. The temple's been rebuilt. Everything should be good, but it's not. This kingdom of God thing hasn't worked out exactly for them. And they've been stretched thin, and this whole kingdom of God thing has kind of put them in a place where they have an attitude towards the things of God. And Malachi is called by the Lord uh, to speak to them, to confront them, in their attitude, and hopefully to help them uh, come to their senses. That's the book of Malachi. Now, what's interesting for me as a pastor is I've read this book and I thought, we're about 2,400 years removed from uh, when Malachi wrote this book, and yet I see (laughs) some of the same attitudes Uh, in the people of God even today. You see, cultures change and times change, but people 
They're pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. So my hope this morning is to, uh, is to uncover uh, these attitudes and deal with them as the Lord deals with them. But also perhaps you might recognize perhaps one or two of those attitudes in yourself. Or maybe in your wife or your hubby and so you want to kind of get that elbow work. <laughs> get that elbow working. Uh, in the hope that um, all of us, including myself, might come to our senses. Now, do you remember the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told in the Gospels? And how this young man took his inheritance and went over and made a mess of his life. And then the Bible says what? He came to his senses, but it cost him dearly. It cost him dearly. My prayer is as as we listen uh, to the words of Malachi that we might come to our senses in several of those areas where perhaps we have an attitude. Now, the attitude is expressed by seven questions they ask the Lord. And the way he's written this book is kind of like in a dialogue. The Lord talks to them and they talk back. So it's kind of like a dialogue. But there are seven questions that appear through all four chapters, and they express this attitude. So when you come to the questions, you have to kind of read them with kind of a sarcastic attitude, okay? So let's look at them, and we're going to move fairly quickly through them. The first one is found in verses 1 through 5. Let me read the passage. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, said the Lord. Here's the attitude. But you say... How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. First attitude is expressed in verses one through five. They see their situation as an expression of God's love. Now that originally sounds like a good thing, but it's really not. They've been in the land about 100 years Back from Babylonian captivity, the temple's been rebuilt, but they're still under the power of a foreign government, the Persians. Things are not going well at all. Uh, Economic times are difficult, and they're looking around, and God says, I've loved you, and they say, oh, really? How have you loved us? With an attitude. Now, the issue really isn't... uh, Uh, how God loves them. Uh, The issue is they are suffering from, and we'll see as we go through the book, some consequences of their own actions. But the Lord's answer to their sarcastic question is, uh, was not Esau Jacob's brother? I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Now that sometimes bothers us. What does he mean by Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated? He's not saying anything about their eternal destination. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, I have chosen Jacob as my covenant people. I have chosen them as my covenant. Esau, I have not chosen. 
And so what he's talking about is that I have showed my love in that I have chosen you. And then in verses three, four, and five, that's worked out in the present day because both Edom, which is Esau, and Jacob were devastated by the Babylonian captivity. But he says, do you notice what he says? I'm building up Jacob. I'm restoring Israel. But Edom, they are done. They are done. Now, perhaps some of us here find ourselves this morning in a place where we're thinking, is this how you love me, God? Allowing maybe an economic situation, uh, perhaps a personal situation, perhaps a health situation. Is, 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 so you love me this way, is this it? And what we have to understand is that our condition, whether it be economic, political, whatever it is, is not necessarily an expression of God's love. What is the fullest expression of God's love to you, to me? Is the covenant that he has made with us through Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of months ago, I had a young man come up to me after the end of the service and he had made a kind of a mess of his life, much like a prodigal. And he was suffering a whole bunch of consequences. And so he comes up to me and he says, kind of tearfully, Pastor Neil, why is God doing all these things to me? I gently told him in the gentle way that I could that it really wasn't God doing these things, but he had made a lot of foolish stupid decisions in the last couple of months, and he was reaping the consequences of his action. And so, the first attitude is, they've done some things that have allowed this situation, but they're seeing their situation as expression of God's love. And the fullest expression of God's love to them was that he had chosen them as the covenant people, and he was restoring them. And that's the same for us. It's not necessarily how our situation is not a measure of God's love. Many times the reason we're going through something is because we've made some foolish decisions. Amen? Many times it's because God is testing us to purify us and to make us more like Jesus. So the first attitude is they see their situation as an expression of God's love. Let's look further. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father, a servant his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. O priest who despise my name. Here comes, here comes the attitude. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, here it is again, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates 
that you might not use uselessly kindle fire on my altar? I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that's pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you're profane in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. As for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what is taken by robbery, what is lame or sick, so that you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among all the nations. The second attitude expressed by those questions, how have we despised your name, is they were allowing selfishness to defile the things of God. They're allowing selfishness to defile the things of God. What was the issue? Well, it's, it's very evident. Um, they were required to bring a sacrifice, but what they were doing, they were bringing the lame, the sick, the blind animals, and saving all the good animals for themselves to selfishly use for their own purposes. God says in verse 8, I like this little bit of sarcasm, Good. bring it to your governor. See how he likes a, a lame or a sick animal. See how, how he responds to it. And then he goes on. He says, oh, that there was somebody that shut the gates because I don't even want anything to do with that. You don't even want it, so you figure, well, just give it to the Lord. Yeah, there it is. I don't even want anything to do with that kind of offering. Now, most mis- mature Christians will know that if, if there's something going to be done for the Lord in a really beautiful way, you know what it is? It's going to cost you something. If you're going to do anything that's of any worth for the Lord, many times it's going to cost you in time and effort or however you want to say it. doesn't come easy. A few years ago, many years ago as a matter of fact, when I was first pastor after Jimmy had gone to the Philippines, the market for electronic keyboards was just coming in. There was a lot of new, brand new stuff on the electric keyboards. And so I would get calls, several times I got calls, from people who wanted to donate their old organs or their pianos to the church. And uh, some of the people, they didn't even know me. They just said, I, I got this old organ. You want to, uh, you know, you want to, you can I give it to you, Pastor? Can you come and pick it up at my house? And they get all kind of huffy because I didn't want them. Now, I didn't say this, but I was tempted to say this. I was tempted to say, folks, how about you giving me that to the church, uh, that new electric keyboard that you're thinking of buying, and you keep your old organ or your piano. (laughs) I didn't say that. (laughs) Their attitude was they're allowing their own selfishness to devile the things of God. Okay, let's look at the third attitude found in chapter 2 beginning in verse 10. Chapter 2, 10, third one. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? 
Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? There's the attitude. For what reason aren't you receiving my offering? Because the Lord has been a witness between you against the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, And let let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Third attitude is they would um, not accept the consequences of their disobedience. They would not accept the consequences of their disobedience. What was going on here? Here's what's happening. They were divorcing their Jewish young wives, the wife they had married in their youth, and they were divorcing them and going and marrying pagan women. Implied there. And so they come to the altar of God, and it's evident that he's not accepting their offering, and they're crying out, what's the matter? Why aren't you accepting me? They thought they could live in sin and go directly against the word of God and then not have any consequences. What's the matter? What's going on? And they have this attitude. Just the past few weeks, I've been working on my summer garden. I wanted to give you an update because I all know you're all wondering what I'm doing. <laughs> I've planted some uh, tomatoes and radishes and zucchini and cucumbers and peppers and some potatoes. You know, I'm trying some potatoes this summer. You know, that's my garden. Now, that's what I've planted, okay? Now, comes the fall, I'm not going to go to my garden and say, hey, what's the problem? Where's my watermelons? Where's my corn? Where's my cantaloupe? You know why? Because I didn't plant them. Uh, My garden's going to say, what are you crazy? What you sow, you shall reap. Now, there's a whole bunch of talk about divorce in the church today. It's, It's, you know, it's not a good thing. Now, I have to say, divorce is not the unforgivable sins. Now, we can, you know, you can fight with me about that whole thing, you know, adultery and all that other stuff. And, you know, okay, whatever. But divorce is not the unforgivable sin, my friends. But wait, wait, wait. There's consequences. There are consequences to that. Now, does the Lord love you? Of course he does. Does he forgive you? Of course he does. If you repent, the blood of Jesus Christ, what? Cleanses us from all sin. However, my friends, my friends, don't think that you can disobey the word of God 
and then just go, well, everything's fine. I just want to move on with my life. That's right, but there's always consequences. So don't come to it with an attitude towards God saying, hey, what's the matter? Why am I going, why am I going through this? There it is. They didn't want to accept the consequences of their own disobedience. It's an attitude. We have to be careful not to pick up. Look with me in um, chapter 2, the next one. Number 4. You have worried the Lord with your words, yet you say, here's the attitude, how have we wearied him? In that you see, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, here's another attitude. Where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. This is the Lord's response. And he will clear the way before me. (laughs) And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purify of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. The fourth attitude is they were questioning the righteousness of the Lord. They were questioning the very righteousness of the Lord. They were wearying him, it says, because they were saying, where's the God of justice? They were watching the wicked and they seemed to be, there doesn't seem to be any justice, no judgment on them. And they're saying, hey, what's the deal? Now, could have been a couple of issues. Could have been like, Today, we oftentimes, uh, we struggle with the prosperity of the wicked, don't you? You see all your wicked friends and they just seem to be getting better and better and winning all the batters and thinking, hey, what's the deal here? And we want the judgment of God and when do we want it? Now! <laughs> That's what, get them, Lord, burn them! That's what we want. Well, wait, wait, wait. We just happen to forget how patient the Lord was with us in our dark days. How he, kindness which led to our repentance. Sometimes we forget that when we deserved no grace, he gave us grace. His, what? Unmerited favor. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We have an attitude. Or it could be, it could be also, perhaps, they were thinking, ah, there is no judgment of God. There is, you know, the wicked just, everything is fine. This whole thing about the judgment of God, just an old wives' tale, just go out and live your life and everything's fine. Could be that too. However, the Lord's answer, did you notice it in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3? He says that. Uh, It's coming. It is coming. It is coming. He talks about the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ in those chapters, in those verses. Now, as I look around today, 
um, at what's going on in, our, say, our country. Let's just use our country. As we look around, it seems like the wicked are prospering, doesn't it? They win all the elections. They have all the media on their side. Everybody's two thumbs up for the, the guys who believe in ungodliness and unrighteousness, right? That's the way it seems to be. And, it, and we have to be careful because it could lead to, in us a spirit of apathy, couldn't it? Oh, whatever. Just kind of give up. Or it could lead, or it could lead to an attitude, well, there is no, there is no judgment of God. I just drift back into my old ways because whatever, everybody's getting away with it. I might as well just get a piece of that too. We drift back into our old sinful ways. But be careful, my friend, because read chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He's coming. And there will be an account. There will be an account. Hmm. Okay. Let's look at the next one. Verses uh, 5 through 7 of chapter 3. The fifth attitude. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow, the orphan, and those who turn aside, the alien, who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But here's here's their attitude. But you say, how shall we return? There's the attitude with that question. They were unaware of their own failings. They were unaware of their own failings. They were saying, how shall we return? (laughs) Return to what? We haven't left. We haven't done anything wrong. How should we return? Now, perhaps um, when we're talking to people about Christian faith, perhaps the most difficult person to talk to about the Christian faith is somebody who thinks they're what? Righteous. <laughs> Be saved? Saved from what? I, I'm not lost. I never lost it. <laughs> I'm not lost. I don't need to be saved. See, they think they're okay. And that's especially true for religious people. They might even go to church. I go to church. Now, that's the issue Jesus had when he was on the earth. Remember? The biggest problem we had, it was not with the tax gatherers and the sinners and the publicans. The biggest problem we had was with what? The religious people. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people. Because they were always saying, well, what's the problem with this guy? He's always talking about repentance and getting right with the Lord and judgment of God. My heavens, what's the matter with him? Get right, would you? They, they thought they were okay. They didn't see their own failings. They didn't see where they fell short. And the classic story is of the story that Jesus tells about what? The tax gatherer and the Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray. Do you remember that one? They go up there, and the tax gatherer, what is he doing? He won't even lift up his head. He's just beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Right? And what's the Pharisee doing? He's rehearsing to God all his righteous deeds. 
Well, I fast, I do this, I, I give my tithe, blah, 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 blah. Not like this reprobate, not like this doofus over here. <laughs> and you know what the, the story ends? It says, Jesus says, and the tax gatherer went home justified. Why? Because he finally, he comes to the place where he says, I am the sinner. Where the Pharisee was spending all his time justifying himself. These guys were unaware. Return? What? Return? I don't have to. I've never left. Really? Really? Now we have this tendency. Have you seen this tendency in yourself? Now say yes, Pastor Neil. I've seen this tendency in myself. Haven't you seen, say your wife or your husband or somebody corrects you something that you've done wrong. What's the first thing that you'd want to do? You give an excuse, don't you? Well, you know, you really don't understand why I did that. And you, de- and you detail a very detailed explanation of how you were right and not wrong. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. Of course it's true. I cannot be the only one doing that in this room. <laughs> of course it's true. Why do we do that? What's the reason? Because if we'll accept that we have done wrong, what does that mean? It means we have to shh. It means we have to shh. We have to change. (laughs) We have to change. Oh, no. Because we say, well, that's just the way we've always done. That's always the way I've, I've always done it that way, right? That's what we say. Or we say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm just that way. It's in my genes. My father taught me, or, you know, some other sort of excuse. Their attitude is, return? How should we return? We never left. They didn't see their own failings. They didn't see their own failings. Okay. Let's look at number, number six, verses eight through 12. How will a man rob God? Yet you were robbing me. Here's the attitude. But how have we robbed you? You hear the sarcasm? How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. For you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The issue is here, they were ignoring their own responsibilities. They were ignoring their responsibilities. The Lord charges them with robbing God, and they respond, well, come on, how have we robbed you? How have they robbed? There was a percentage, 10%, of their produce of the ground was to be brought into the temple to take care of the needs of those who were working in the temple. But since they, it was in their possession, they thought they had the right to do whatever they wanted with those, their goods, the fruit of their labor. So they figured, well, I can do whatever. But God confronts them and he says, no, 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 you don't understand. Even though it's in your possession, 10% of that belongs to me. So when you don't bring it into the, the temple, you don't provide, therefore you are robbing God. And how can you expect 
God's blessing on you when you're robbing God. And he goes on, he says, you're cursed because there's a devourer in the land. And what, what he's saying is, because you're not doing this, I've allowed a devourer in the land, so actually you're worse off than if you had given the percentage that was worthy, that really belonged to me, and you're robbing from me. He says, but test me now on this, and, and, and do your responsibility, and see if I don't open the windows of heaven. That's what's going on there. Now, so they're ignoring their own responsibilities. Now, there's a lot of talk about this particular passage. This might be in the pastor's Bible. This is the passage that gets, you know, the the pages are most worn because he's always turning to this passage about tithing. And people will say to me, well, you know, Pastor Neil, now come on, this is Old Testament. This is Old Covenant stuff. And I have to say, if you're an expositor of the Bible, you'd have to say, well, yeah, it is Old Testament. It is. And so... What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, if you go to the New Testament, probably the clearest passage, the most uh, passage that has the most concerning giving is found in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Go home and read it. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But here, just let me focus in on two verses in chapter 9. This kind of sums it up. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's there's the principle right there. But then he goes on, Paul writes, each one must do as he is purposed in his heart. From a cheerful cheerful heart. What that means is, is that your giving comes from a result of you recognizing how good God has been to you. And you purpose in your own heart what you should give. That's the New Testament principle. Now notice what he says. Not grudgingly, not grudgingly, which means, all right, all right, pastor, I'll give. Okay, here it is. Not grudgingly, not grudgingly, nor under compulsion. Under compulsion means uh, if you don't tithe, you're going to hell. You're not even a Christian. Neither of those. Okay? Not grudgingly, not under compulsion but as a response from a cheerful heart because you've realized how good God has been to you. Okay. You're saying, okay, well, Pastor Neil, but how much and how does it work? Well, here, let me, let me explain something to you. The Bible says that all Scripture, all, all, what does all mean? All means all, and that's all all means. <laughs> it means all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for what? Teaching for proof for creating and righteousness. Is that what the Bible says? Now, maybe, let me make this suggestion. Maybe you ought to take in the whole counsel of God and let the whole counsel of God speak to your own wicked heart. <laughs> That's what I'll do with that. They were ignoring their own responsibilities. Let the scriptures speak to you. And let your giving be a response to the goodness that God has shown you. Okay, let's look at number seven, being in verse 13, the seventh attitude. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Here's the, here's the attitude, here's the question. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? With sarcasm. You have said it's vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge? 
and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they all test God and escape. Then the Lord responds. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day I will prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. What's well, the issue here that bubbles forth in that question, how we've spoken to you, spoken against you? They were putting aside the value of serving the Lord. They were putting it aside. They were saying, well, you know, if we serve the Lord or if we not serve the well, we would have just been as well off if we had or, or if we had. It doesn't make any difference. They were thinking, well, it doesn't make any difference. See what it says here? What profit is it that we have kept his charge? It doesn't mean anything. Now, notice verses 16 through 18. <laughs> he says, the Lord says, especially verse 18, he says, there will be an accounting. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. They were saying, they were looking around and everybody kind of doing whatever they wanted. And they're thinking, oh, it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. It doesn't pay to serve in ministry. And it might seem that way to their own minds, their own perceptions. But God comes back and he says, there is going to be an accounting. Now, if you look in the Bible, towards the end of the book of Revelation, it says what? says, the books will be opened and the people will be judged by what they've done. Ooh. In the writing of, of Paul in Corinthians, he says that all the believers, all the believers will go before the beam of judgment and we will be judged based on what we've done with Jesus Christ. The knowledge that we have. We'll be held accountable and rewards will be given based on what we do. The Bible talks about an accounting. Now, in our own hearts, it might seem like, well, we just doesn't make any difference whether you serve the Lord or not. Now, don't be so foolish, my friends. I think many Christians miss out on an important part of what it means to be a believer because oftentimes they have this attitude, well, it doesn't make any difference what I do. I don't have to serve the Lord. And some people might say, well, you know, Pastor Neil, I can't believe that you said that. I can say a lot of times in a local assembly, only 20 to 30% of people are really involved in ministry. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. And some might say, well, Pastor Neil, you know, I'm really kind of offended that you said that because, you know, I serve the Lord in my neighborhood at work and my family and just because I'm not involved here in the church, how dare you say that I'm not serving the Lord? Some might say that. Okay, you say that. Some also might say, well, you know, Pastor Neil, um, things are really tough, and I spend all my time just meeting the, the needs of my family. And there's not much time left in the week to come down here and help at the church. Well, you can say that. Others might say, well, you know, I, I just don't know my gift. As soon as I get my gift together, Pastor Neil, I'll, 
you know, then I'll, you know, I'll be down. Don't expect a call right away. And you can say that, but let me tell you what the Bible says. <laughs> the Bible says you can, we, all of us can fool each other. You can fool your pastor. And you, you can paint a really rosy picture. But listen, listen carefully, my friends. The Lord knows your heart. <laughs> the Lord knows what you're doing. And you're going to have to answer, not to me. That has nothing to do with me or any of the leaders here. It has to do with the Lord. You're going to have to answer to the Lord in what you've done with your faith and how you used it. The Lord knows our hearts. Now, there's a brand new world awaiting any Christian, any Christian who says, yes, Lord, I'll serve you. Yes, Lord, I'll serve you in whatever you have for me. I'm ready to start serving in a very practical way. There's a brand new world. It's called, that's called the deeper life. It has nothing to do with gaining more knowledge. The deeper life is when you surrender yourself to serve the Lord in whatever capacity he's calling you to. And when you do that, you enter in to a new and different Christian life where everything before that seems shallow and self-centered. As, as a pastor, I watch a lot of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And the reason they're that way is because we don't have people who are willing to say, yes, Lord, I'll serve in this capacity. Um, and when you begin to do that and you see the Holy Spirit use your words and your actions and your attitude, touch people's lives and watch people turned around because of what you did in the power of the Spirit, it's a whole brand new life. It's a brand new life. And so we have, we have ministries, the pro-life ministry, we have the grade school kids where we, and the nursery, we have to constantly be begging people to teach their own kids, people who attend our church whose kids are not being taught because we have to, because Heidi even sometimes has to teach a class. She's in charge of the whole children's ministry, but she's in there teaching a class because she can't get adults who will be responsible enough to say, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to minister to the children in our church. And there's many other areas. There's a whole bunch of areas. <clears throat> and I say, I'll say to you, and, and I'm not berating you, I'm just saying, you don't have to answer, you don't need to say anything to me. I'm telling you that I and you are going to have to answer to the Lord with what you did, with the faith that you have. That's what's going on here. Okay. It's getting real quiet in the church. <laughs> Look at uh, chapter 4. He closes. Look how he closes. This is conclusion. I am concluding. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day is coming, will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so they will leave neither a branch or a root. 
But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to the father so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so ends the Hebrew scriptures. Now, did you notice, isn't this interesting? The New Testament closes with the Jesus writing seven words of encouragement to the New Testament church. Did you see that? Now, some people say there was, and there were seven real churches that he wrote those letters to. Some people say they represent the kingdom ages. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but that's interesting. But it also represents times in every church age there were specific problems, and the Lord wrote seven words of encouragement to close the New Testament, and then what does he close with? The second coming of Jesus. That's how the New Testament closes. Guess what? Look at this. In the last book in the English Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, what do we have? Seven words of encouragement. And then what does he do? He closes with the second coming of Christ. Oh! May our attitudes reflect that we truly do believe in that second coming. Do you believe? Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Oh, I pray that each of us would not be ashamed on that day and how we responded to this truth that God presents, both closing of the Hebrew Scriptures and the closing of the New Testament Scriptures. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we we are so thankful for Malachi. We're so thankful for the Hebrew Scriptures passages that we've been reading these last 13 weeks that have spoken over and over again about the soon coming of Jesus but also of our responsibilities as believers before that day and Lord we know that we're not saved by works by what we do we're saved by our simple faith and trusting in the word of God and the word of God proclaims that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day and we believe that we put our faith and trust in that. And yet, Lord, we know that also if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We need to leave aside our own selfishness, self-centered lives, and serve you with a whole heart. May that message permeate each one of us. And may your spirit speak to us. As a result of these readings this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.